Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. Uh, we're with Zal Limbuwala. He was a founder and CEO of Romonet, a data center software company, which we'll talk more about later. He's recently sold the company to CBRE with his partner. Zal, thank you so much. We're meeting, we're meeting in San Jose uh, at the San Jose Convention Center. He's yeah. just passing through, picking up uh, fancy paintings from various artists in the area. Going to, a, going to an Nils Fromm concert, going to as you, you do. A Nils Fromm concert, <laughs> yes, as you do once you sell a company. Yeah. Um, thank you, Zal. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for that. It's good to uh, connect again. Yeah. So first time we met, I was just, it was probably 10 years ago. I was just starting at DCD, just starting to write about data centers. And back then you, were, um, you had founded a, a data center group within the British Computer Society, which That's was right. the 60-year-old industry group That's right. uh, in the UK. So um, tell us about the society briefly and yep. why, why did it need that group sure. at the time? Well, I mean, 10 years ago, as I think uh, probably many of your listeners uh, will know, data centers were um, certainly around, were there, hidden away. Um, definitely weren't recognized as, a, as an industry in its own right. Um, they, uh, I, I joke quite often about the data centers back then, um, the, the tiles uh, on the raised floor being carpeted. You know, so you know uh, when, you, when you're walking into a data center of a certain vintage. So the British Computer Society was, just happened to be a forum that um, I got introduced to that represent the IT industry. Uh, in the UK, in other places around the world as well, but predominantly in the UK. And um, it seemed to be a good place to set up a special interest group. They had lots of special interest groups, again, predominantly around the computing side of things, so high-performance computing, back then grid computing, mm -hmm. um, security, all sorts of things. Um, so I set up this data center specialist group and said, look, you know, I think this is uh, part of the industry that needs to be recognized in its own right. Um, I think it's part of the industry that's going to grow. We're going to become more reliant on these big buildings that we're putting all the computers in. Um, I don't think it'll be sufficient to just roll computers into a carpeted room and put a, an air conditioner on the wall. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was really where, where that started. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the Romanet side of things was, was getting going at the same time. So having an ability to talk to the industry, not as Romanet, uh, having that, that kind of dual path was, was really useful. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, uh, 10 years ago, also the uh, UK carbon tax talk was kind of in its maybe early stages and uh, the data center industry was getting increasingly concerned. Yeah, I mean, that came a little bit later, maybe two, three years after we founded the uh, specialist group. Um, uh, but, it, but, you know, it was definitely one of the reasons the specialist group was founded because it was obvious that data centers, as they were going to grow, were going to become larger and larger energy consumers. And given certainly Europe, at least, has, has always had quite a strong focus on sustainability and energy efficiency. Um, it, it, it seemed, you know, like another reason that we should get representation mm -hmm. together before getting targeted. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think we realized quite how targeted we would be when we set the group up, but turned out to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I guess, one of the things you guys were um, trying to do is to really drive the point that this is its own industry and it's mission critical, uh, which would uh, then give some kind of a, a break from carbon tax to this industry. 
definitely didn't happen. Well, I mean, it, 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 it kind of didn't, it didn't. So I think certainly when we talk about taxation of, uh, of carbon emissions and, and you know, heavily, heavy use of energy, um, one of the main things we wanted the public to recognize, as well as, you know, the legislators that came along later, is that the, the data center industry was not a consumer in its own right. And that just because it was consuming energy, um, you couldn't look at it in isolation because it was supporting so many other services that were essentially being automated, digitized, that was pulling carbon out of, you know, those industries. And then the obvious ones were transport and logistics. So if you can use a computerized system to control, you know, your fleet of, uh, of trucks that are delivering things between logistics centers and consumers and businesses, and you can route those things better using software and computers to take the diesel emissions and, and that side of things, reduce that industry's carbon emissions. That, you know, there needs to be some credit, some recognition for that. But yeah, we're going to use some compute power. We're going to use some energy in the data center, but we're removing a huge amount of carbon from this other industry. So that was kind of raise the awareness and make sure people understood this wasn't just something to look at in isolation. Mm -hmm. So that happened then. Um, the carbon tax went into effect 2013? Somewhere around there, yeah. yeah. Um, looking back and uh, fast forward to now, what, what's been the effect, do you think, on the data center industry overall? Well, can I remember the, uh, when I started at DCD, the first magazine cover mm -hmm. uh, had like a, a big black bomb falling onto yeah. a data center. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> which it was, was a, a bomb like that a, said, said something said like carbon tax. Carbon tax or something, uh, yeah. So that was kind of a blowing heavy, up the industry. A heavy handed way of, of saying this is a, a threat. Has yeah. it turned out to be a, you, you a know, bigger threat? I'm sure, um, and, and, and I was, I have to say, I was an observer to, to that because I was, I was running Roman at the time. So I wasn't in, you know, while I've managed uh, data centers for companies prior to that, I didn't directly have to deal with, right. you know. The, but your clients did. Yeah, but our clients absolutely did. And, and I know, you know, it's, it was an extra thing to do. It was an extra thing to worry about. It was more paperwork to fill in. It was, it cost them time and money. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, for the most part, certainly in retrospect, everybody would say it had a positive impact on the fact that it, it was another significant driver to getting the industry to getting itself in shape around becoming energy efficient. So, and, and that ultimately, even for the data center operators, is a positive thing, right? Because if, you, if you're improving your PUE and you're improving your efficiency, you're reducing your operating cost. So it was fairly easy to wrap up a, yeah, you've got to reduce carbon, but in the process of doing so, you're gonna reduce your operating cost. And that's that's not that a difficult story to uh, to sell a business. Mm -hmm. And so Romanet was kind of a lot about that, about cost, right? There was lots of uh, software for data center management about uh, reducing, yep. improving efficiency here, um, improving it there, managing yep. the systems. You guys really went after. Let's take a critical look at how much all of this is costing you, yeah. and what you can do to reduce that cost. Can you talk about um, how that happens? Sure. Yeah, um, it absolutely was uh, our focus and really uh, born out of the fact that when um, my co-founder and I, Liam, were running data centers, um, I think for cable and wireless amongst others, 
we we had we had very little handle on on what our costs were not because you know they, they couldn't account for them properly but because so many so much of the cost in a data center are shared and they're shared across all of the the tenants customers you know whatever you want to call them um servers in the racks in that data center allocating that cost back to the end consumers lines of business applications whatever they are um can be a challenge um, you know, a lot of people today still use fairly basic uh, allocation uh, methods by saying, well, there's that customer, they've got 10 racks, so let's take, of 100, so let's take one-tenth of our overhead costs and allocate it to them, and then the 10 racks, that's an obvious direct cost that we can sort of point at. Um, certainly, as the world on the compute side changed and things became more virtualized, now you have, you know, one server or a rack of servers spread between you know potentially hundreds of different customers so now how do i allocate that cost back so that world of uh understanding your cost and being able to manage it first stage to being able to reduce it um was really where the romanet story began and a rec we recognized fairly early on that if you were to to, to manage this in any sensible way you couldn't do it as a sort of static one-off exercise. It needed to be dynamic. You needed those systems to, to give you the information that you could then use to continuously understand what's happened to cost. Because there's always changes in the data center. If you sit down and try and do a cost analysis, um, what we call activity-based costing or bottoms-up costing by hand, you can do that. But to be honest, by the time you finish doing it, the dynamic situation's changed. So you, you've got to do it all over again, and that's just not practical. Do you think kind of the sophistication of uh, how enterprise operators are thinking about their data center costs, their calculations, has that improved uh, over the years? Mm -hmm. To my impression is it hasn't much, which is mm -hmm. part of the reason uh, the hyperscale clouds have kind of become a no-brainer for lots of people. Yeah, I mean, we, we struggled quite, honest, quite honestly in the early days to, to get traction with the industry. Um, because of the, the the disconnect between the way those businesses were run, whether they were enterprise data center operators or even service providers, you know, colos and such, um, between from a business perspective, business finance and operationally, um, you know, all of the focus in in the data center world is on operational availability. That's always king. It's about uptime. It's about you know, no service downtime, zero disruption. 100% service level availability and, and so on. And everything else is secondary. Now, we had great traction with all of the CFOs out there when we sat down and explained to them, look, we have this technology that can help you um, dynamically allocate costs in the data center so you, you can better manage them. I mean, it was music to the CFO's ears. We, we got a huge amount of traction in the world of data center CFOs. But, you know, data center businesses are not run by the CFOs. <laughs> um, as much as some of the CFOs would like that to be the case, um, the, the business is not run by the CFO. So certainly in, in you know, the early days, th this was very much seen as a, as a nice to have, not a, a, a need. Um, and, and the maturity of that in, in the market, to some extent, or I should say that challenge, they always had that challenge, but it was almost circumvented, as you've said, by the cloud guys by saying, well, I can outsource this problem, basically, right? So I can, I can take 
um, you know, my enterprise data centers and all this compute that I own and all this stuff that's sitting on my balance sheet, and I can turn it into a, an easy to manage monthly bill, you know, with Amazon or Azure or Google or whoever. And from a CFO's perspective, that's great. Okay, so I don't have to now figure out how to do this, whether that's manually or, you know, buying a tool from Romanet, what it may be, I can just give the problem to them and they can give me my monthly bill back and now that's easier to manage. Yeah. Of course, the corollary of that is that a lot of people are now, you know, their costs are exploded inside those those cloud guys and they're starting to realize, oh, we need to bring some of this back. It's another thing you need to manage yeah, also. Just, it's, not just yeah. like, it's not like Netflix where it, you pay The problem your didn't go away. Yeah. Didn't go away. You know, you pushed someone else for a while, mm -hmm. that created some other problem, you know, so, but, you know, we're, we're still on the journey, I guess, as an industry. And, but, I mean, to be fair, they do, um, you know, the hyperscale providers, they do a much better job, I think, overall, of managing these facilities efficiently uh, because that's kind of their laser focus. Um, I, I would say uh, you may detect some hesitation. I've got nothing, absolutely nothing, it's cloud providers. They do, the hyperscale guys, they, they, they build at a crazy rate of knots in terms of new capacity. And they certainly build very efficient data centers from a, a design perspective. So from day one, you know, they're, they're cutting out all the fat um, and trying to deliver the lowest cost for each unit of compute. Um, so, that, you know, their, their efficiency generally, uh, when compared with enterprise operators, is much better. It's driven again by that we need to deliver each unit of product sold for the lowest cost possible. Mm -hmm. So they engineer in a level of efficiency that, again, enterprises don't. That doesn't mean that there isn't more that can be done, improvements that can be made. And certainly the, the hyperscale guys we've worked with, there's still a lot of fat there that can be taken out, but it's definitely a better starting place than most yeah. enterprises. And, and the scale, their scale also allows them to reduce the cost, right? Yeah, there's definitely scale benefits. It costs there's, a lot more to build, uh, a lot more per megawatt to build a sub-megawatt data center than it is yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, particularly the, 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 the buying power that you have, the, the procurement leverage that you have if you're, you're able to negotiate. And, and that's where some of the really big savings come in. Yeah. You're able to negotiate with your vendors that you're going to build, you know, four, five, six, seven hundred megawatts of capacity versus six. You're going to get better pricing significantly. Right. So, yeah, the, the, that economy of scale that they have is, is real. Um, but the challenge of operating at scale is real too. And there, there is very much we've seen for all the, all the analysis we've done over the years now, six, 700 plus data centers we've modeled globally, we see very much a knee point where there's an economy of scale that you, you get, again, from growing and growing and growing, but there's a point at which your cost to scale starts to increase. Because now, you know, the management of something that is much bigger, much um, more complex just because of its scale, um, it, it puts a lot of people in new territories. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Facebooks and Amazon and Google world are well aware of all of the new ground they break in terms of the scale challenges. Yeah. And, and that's scale challenges from the hardware perspective, from a software perspective. Or, or uh, across the board. Network capacity. Yeah. Across facilities. The board. Absolutely. Well. Facilities too. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, just the, just the, I mean, even really simple things like, uh, 
you know, I think everybody in this industry is aware that there's a shortage of people, shortage of skilled labor, shortage of experience. And when you're growing at the rate uh, that the hyperscale guys are, you don't have time to look back. You know, you build, you fill, and you're already on to the next one. So if you continue at that forward, you know, uh, sprint, really, you've got no time and no resource internally to look back and say, right, is that one we built one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, maybe even six months ago, is that still operating at peak efficiency? Is it still operating as its design performance or as something knocked it off its design performance or a thing degrading in there? Or They just don't have time to look at that because they're always in the, uh, you know, the race to, to go forward. So there's still, a, and, and that's one of the obvious, most obvious scale challenges is how do I, how do I track this ever growing estate from an operational perspective and even start to think about operational efficiency. Mm -hmm. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk about uh, Romanet and CBRE. You guys sold the company earlier this year. You're still with the company, you and, and Liam both. Why not just you know go buy your, yourself uh, a golden suit? <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is, um, and I, sort of I think it ties back to the, um, to the reason we started the special interest group, is we've always, um, guess had a an objective uh, or a mission is probably a better word um, Liam and I've always had a mission to improve the industry so you know we didn't start Romanet to exit Romanet and sail away into the sunset we started Romanet to solve an interesting challenging certainly to us um, set of problems that we could see coming uh, we could see growing in you know this budding data center industry, um, which was very immature ten years ago, still compared to many other industries, still in the immature stage, um, and that's the thing that, that keeps it interesting. That's why we come to work every day. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we come to work every day for CBRE now um, is even more exciting because we have a we have a bigger, I guess, route to market from our perspective and, and a way in which we can have a bigger impact. On the market overall, and that—that's what makes it interesting and exciting for me. So, um, I see. Yeah, so it's just operating at a at a larger scale now. Mm -hmm. So, um, how does that change the way you work? Being founders, founder CEO is you know, you're constantly on the road, probably juggling uh, lots of balls. But how are you so, doing anything differently <laughs> now that you're part of CBRE? I guess nothing's changed from that perspective. <laughs> uh, I'm still on the road, and I'm still uh, juggling balls. Um, the, the, the big difference is um, really in two areas. One is we have a brand now. We're part of a brand now. Um, the, the, after CBRE uh, uh, ingested the Romanet business, they bought the brand as well because the brand is, is known. It's not obviously as broadly known as CBRE, but it's known, and where it is known, it's known for its strength from a technology perspective. You know, our technology platform has is, is got 10 years of development behind it. This is not something that was cooked up yesterday. This is something that's tried, tested, has won awards, has a lot of track record behind it. And that's part of what CBRE were, were buying, part of what they were acquiring. So, you know, we've rebranded it CBRE Romanet. But the benefit now is I have the CBRE brand behind me, which, again, is a... Is a a brand that gives me and the team an ability to walk in the door to the client and the client not say, well, I've never heard of Romanet. 
So the first thing you need to do is help me understand why I should risk any of any more time, let alone any business, uh, working with you. Um, you know, the CBRE brand gives us a, a, again a level of credibility and I guess a level of risk assurance to the client that we're not going to let them down. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's a big element, and obviously the other big element is the fact that CBRE's investment into our business, which is ongoing. Um, even though we're part of the, the overall their overall business now, means we can bring new features, new capability to market. We can integrate with some of the existing CBRE technology. Um, it's just a much bigger um, playing field. Mm -hmm. And what's what's the existing CBRE technology that's uh, relevant for you guys? So there's there's a range of uh, uh, technology and initiatives that that were running in CBRE. You know, lot prior to to us turning up there. I think some, some of the more interesting ones are uh, the, the ones that a lot of people are, are starting to play with, like uh, augmented reality, so the AR, VR. So there's an AR um, program that's been running in, in CBRE for a while, which from their perspective is about being able to, given predominantly CBRE's FM business in terms of facilities managing their clients' data centers, the ability to put, for example, a highly skilled chief engineer on the shoulder, if you like, of an on-site guy when they're in the middle of a switching exercise. Mm -hmm. In the form of a... In the uh, form of an AR set of goggles. And so you've got a second pair of eyes who may be across the other side of the world, mm -hmm. right? But you could, for argument's sake... And they can get, tell them, yeah. turn this knob or unplug this cable. Absolutely. Whether it's, whether it's you know, direct instructions or just that second set of experienced eyes, maybe the expert in the in the device that the on-site guy is going to fiddle with mm -hmm. is incredibly valuable, right? Incredibly valuable. Now, imagine if, if we combine uh, our data, our analytics with that. So it's not, it's not just then a second set of eyes that don't need to be physically on-site. We could provide uh, in that same AR headset um, analytic data about what's, what they're looking at, right? Historic data, we could provide all sorts of different um, key data points for whatever it is they're working on. So those types of technology integrations are really, I think, obvious benefits to it. How mature is that um, AR technology at CBRE? It's being used. It's um, being used yeah, by, by customers? It's being actively? used today. I mean, it's new, uh -huh. um, but it is, you know, it's live. It's being used. Uh, I, I don't know if you can see it in the US, but I've certainly walked into one of the, the customer demo suites in, in, in the London CBRE offices and yeah, you can try it out. You can put mm -hmm. it on and see it working. And yeah, I mean, it's new, but it is, it's up and running. You saw it being used um, as a, in a demo mm -hmm. at CBRE offices, but is it actually being used in data centers yeah. and customer data centers? Yeah, yeah. Not, not in all of them, but it's, uh -huh. it, its use has started. And, and we will, it's an, it's an obvious thing that has so much benefit again that it, it, it will absolutely, um, absolutely be picked up and, and used. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how again, you, 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 I guess, monetize for CBRE the investment that's put into technology, whether that's their investment in the AR stuff that they've done or their investment in Romanet, that all needs to be figured out with, you know, with the business and with the customers. Um, but the, 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 the use case is obvious. It seems that it may also help with the, the problem of operationalizing these edge data centers yeah. where you have because that's, that's kind of a big problem that they're trying to solve, though. This, yeah. this company's packet, Vapor.io, 
um, how do you, you know, if you do eventually have a couple thousand these little data centers and there are, some of them are in the middle of nowhere, how do you, um, how do you go change a server in yeah. one of those? Yeah. And, and you know, not, fix an issue not go or, broke. Yeah. So they're, they're talking about things like having a UPS driver mm -hmm. go in and yeah. uh, exactly. so, change, uh, change a server. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just to be clear, you mean UPS as in the delivery people, not right. UPS as in no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> an uninterruptible yeah, yeah, delivery. Yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, you know, I think the, the edge, the edge um, use case, let's call it, for AR, again, is an obvious one. And actually, the edge use case uh, for Romanet is an obvious one as well. So put those two things together. I mean, we're, we've already had conversations, um, can't tell you who with, but with some of the, uh, the joint customers that we, we shared uh, with CBRE prior to the acquisition. We've already had discussions with them about, right, in their edge strategy, how they're, they're a, uh, a business that today builds large data centers, like many others, and all of their skilled human resources are on site at those data centers, you know, on shift. And, you know, they're bringing in and they're gaining the knowledge of that site because they work there for months and years. And, you know, it's all uh, the expertise is all in those people on site predominantly. Now, what happens when, you know, you're, you're rather than having 10, 10 or 15 or 20 megawatt data centers, you now have a thousand 100 kW data centers, but obviously it's not practical to man the data center at all. I mean, these are lights out, as, as I have hashtagged a few times, you know, the unmanned edge. I think a, a significant part of um, the edge data center story going forward is going to be about small pockets of capacity, you know, whether that's help, whatever the, the technology used, whether that's the, the vapor chamber, which is, you know, ideal to be unmanned you'd, you'd never man a single vapor chamber somewhere you need very sad yeah very sad sad job to have um but the technology to um monitor manage and and certainly in the future to proactively fix uh the the technology that's in those edge sites absolutely needs to be there you know, people like uh, a Vapor have done a good job on, on the software side of integrating, I guess, the facilities piece, you know, the rack and the power supply to the, to the compute with the compute element and, you know, their uh, open DCRE, as I remember it. I know they have a commercial version, but that provides that remote capability to, to manage this thing in a yep. way that it just isn't there today in this sort of enterprise yeah. uh, style data center. But... If you start, you know, at some point, a human's got to go back and touch that thing. Um, you know, whether you run a policy that says, look, we'll, we'll, let, we'll, we'll let things fail. And when we get to whatever it is, 10% failures, 20% failures, then we'll send a human site to deal with, you know, switch out a whole bunch of things at the same time. Not every time one single thing fails, we need to put someone in a, in a van and send them there. Now, that's where the, the question arises, well, who do you send? How do you know what, what skills are needed? Um, how do you know what equipment, if it's a, you know, a bit of hardware that needs to be replaced, how do you know what stuff to send? And that's all got to come together with the, the monitoring and the predictive analytics technology to, to inform you about what's happening, preferably before it happens. So you know, condition-based maintenance is, a, is an important element for 
being able to send that that UPS driver to somewhere before the fan fails as opposed to after the fan fails, you know, that would be an right. ideal scenario. And, you know, perhaps a UPS driver is, a, is one step too far, but let's use it for the example. But if you if it's you send that, example, yeah, right? exactly. But if you send that person out there with their AR headset on and all the information that they need, and again, someone on the other end uh, of the headset, as it were, then it, you've got potentially some way of dealing with a again a scale challenge um, that today's operating model for data centers doesn't support. Mm. Now, I think you know robotics has got a large part to play in the future as well, but this is the direction we're headed in. We've got to figure out what those technologies are to, to deal with these different um, you know, models of, of how we're deploying and using and managing data centers. And since we started talking about Edge, um, so we're, we're here at the uh, Open Compute Summit. There's a lot more uh, liquid cooling information, liquid cooling vendors on the floor, mm -hmm. liquid cooling presentations than there ever were in previous <laughs> yeah. summits. I just heard a presentation by Microsoft. They're yeah. experimenting with every kind of liquid cooling there is, mm -hmm. seeing how that works. So from your perspective, uh, from the perspective of pure cost, yeah. that's a big factor for Microsoft guys. That's also a big factor. They basically said, yeah, the technologies is pushing, um, the processor technology is pushing yeah. liquid cooling there because at some at some point, there's just no way to cool this to cool these chips with with air. You need liquid cooling, but you know TCO is the second part. Yeah. So um, from what you guys have seen, from what you've analyzed, I'm sure you've analyzed a bunch of these things. What does um, immersion cooling, uh, direct to chip cooling, mm -hmm. um, rear door heat exchanger, uh, liquid cooling? What does that do to the cost equation? Is that a huge cost difference? So it's, it's that's a really good question. I mean, we we've done. Um, analysis on, on pretty much all the different types of, of liquid cooling. And it, it doesn't surprise me. In fact, I, I, I expected the, um, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but I expected all of the liquid cooling vendors out there to jump on the edge bandwagon. And actually, I think it's the right, the right thing to do for them, right? So I'm, I'm supportive of that. But it's, it, it's, almost, a, um, it's an, almost an obvious direction for them because the business case for liquid cooling in traditional data centers, I'll just call them traditional, whether they're hyperscale or cola, whatever, I know there are differences, but let's just differentiate with edge and traditional yeah. at the moment. The business case for liquid cooling, whether it's immersion, you know, whether it's direct chip, whether it's rear exit door, um, from a cost perspective, is very, very dependent on uh, the scenario and situation that you are in. So there, there is, um, and the liquid cooling guys may hate me for saying this, but you know, from all the anal uh, analysis we've done, there, is, there isn't a generic story that says in every use case, you're always going to have a lower cost if you deploy liquid cooling. That, that isn't the case. And it, it also isn't the case that, you, that immersion cooling delivers the same savings as you know, direct chip or rear door. That's not the case either. In the traditional data center world, <clears throat> they, there are use cases that liquid cooling is the obvious choice. And you know, probably the best example of that is where density is a concern. So, and this is what I mean by, by the situation you're in. If you're in a situation where, let's say your data center is in Tokyo, right? So you, you're occupying you know, one, two, three floors of a, 
of a, of a big, big building in Tokyo, what your, one of your big costs is the cost of the land, the space, right? Because you're in Tokyo. Now compare that with, you know, uh, a site in Dallas or a site in Virginia or a site in Phoenix. The cost of land is now a much smaller part. So the liquid, the business case, if you like, for liquid cooling is very dependent on where your your big costs are. Are your big costs energy? Because you're, you know, you're in um, you're in central London and you're paying whatever it may be, uh, industrial rate eight, nine, ten pence per kilowatt hour. Uh, or you're in California and you're paying much more than that because of, again, all of the taxation on top because of generation challenges in California. Or are you in, uh, you know, are you in uh, um, Washington and paying maybe three cents per kilowatt hour? And again, maybe a lot less on land. So the business case for liquid cooling is so dependent on where your costs are coming from. Is it space? Is it capital to some extent? Is it um, energy cost? And the other thing to factor, particularly in the hyperscale designs, water. Because most of the hyperscale sites now are, are using adiabatic systems, right? They're running chillerless um, or, or they're running you know, with the chillers off uh, mm -hmm. for a significant part of the time and using adiabatic cooling. And, and there's a, you know, an absolute need to look at the, the water costs in there that can can easily mount up to be more than the electricity costs in some places. So again, now if you think about if water is your biggest cost, you don't need to do a lot of analysis to say maybe using water as your or a liquid as your cooling medium in that scenario isn't the best, going to give you the best outcome. So it's, it's situation specific, but I think that in the case of the edge, one of the advantages that, that certainly at the, I guess, the immersion cooling end of the, all of the liquid cooling technologies, one of the advantages is almost insulation, if you like, from the, the environment around you, right? Because if you can put your server inside uh, some sort of dielectric liquid, then, you know, dust becomes less of a problem and noise becomes less of a problem. And if, if you think about it, wherever these things are, if they're in, for data centers, hostile environments or, or maybe sensitive environments where you, you can't have big, big chillers running because it's noise pollution to, you know, if it's in an urban area. Yeah, where it's hot, where yeah. it could be smoggy. Yeah. Or, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so in those, I think liquid cooling has a real, um, a, a, a real benefit in, in the edge scenarios, but again, it will still be situation dependent and it will also be technology dependent because the business case around uh, you know, the heat pipe director chip is very different to the business case for full immersion cooling. And, and the biggest difference there is that if, you, if you're only cooling a proportion, you know, yeah, maybe 80% of the thermal energy coming off the CPU and, and memory and whatnot, if you're only taking 80% of the, that heat away using liquid, you still got to deal with the 20%. Right, which means you still need air to flow. It means you still need some air handling, subject to where you are in the world and whatever conditions your IT equipment requires, or you set as you know your operating environment. You may still need chillers, so you've you've still got a chunk of capital cost up front for managing air handling and air cooling. Yes, it's to a smaller degree, but then you've got to maintain all that equipment. There's more stuff that can go wrong, so. I think immersion cooling for me is is um, probably has the biggest 
benefit as far as all the different liquid cooling technologies are concerned. And, and again, it, it seems that, well, in some cases, um, like for Google and their TPUs, uh, regardless of what location they're in, um, they just they just figure this is the only way we can do this, to cool these chips. Yeah. So we have to go in. Um, and they admit that that's an extra cost, but it's a cost they have to yeah. accept because, again, because the processing technology is forcing this cooling technology change. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've been, I think we've been lucky to some extent. Um, I, I guess I'll say that in quotes. <laughs> in that <clears throat> for, you know, certainly the last 10 years and, and years before it, we've been using general purpose CPUs, right? So the Intel x86, yeah. Spark processors, whatever it may be, they're all general purpose CPUs. So cookie cutter, we put them in a box, we cool them with fans, well understood. Um, you know, there, there was not a lot of variance to deal with. But now we're looking at a world of application-specific CPUs that, you know, are designed for whatever it may be, designed yeah. for the machine learning, designed for, you know, running certain types of, uh, uh, of analytics. The, the application-specific CPUs present us with a, a broader range of challenges to deal with in terms of the environment they need to operate at their peak performance, and again, performance might be thermal performance, energy performance, ultimately cost performance. Um, so we're going to see those those technologies that literally have been, uh, you know, floating around the edge of our industry, coming in to to be, you know, much more than just uh, interesting technologies. Technologies that are now absolutely needed to make these things work. I want to go back to European politics. Oh, no. As our last question. Not Brexit. <laughs> Brexit. <laughs> no, yes. So your, your, your clients um, in Europe, in, in the UK, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of them have data centers, you know, um, in the in the soon-to-be EU, but not UK. <laughs> <laughs> and same. in the UK at the same time. Anyway, yeah. just what kind of feedback have you heard from folks? Uh, what kind of concerns? Are there any concerns? In the data center world... I don't think there is a, if we talk about the industry in the UK, data centers, I don't think there really is going to be a big impact to the industry from a Brexit perspective. Okay. Okay. There will be an impact in terms of people will make different decisions because of Brexit as to whether they want to even land new capacity on that island, uh, you know, that's trying to become a real island island. Um, <laughs> So yes, there will be an impact from that perspective, but um, that's probably a longer-term impact, and, and it's anybody's guess to see, you know, whether those decisions will get made purely because of the, I guess, the political isolation that, that, that the country's heading towards. From that perspective, you know, if your people generally are putting capacity and putting compute and putting applications as close to this is the whole edge drive, right? As close to the consumers as possible. So if your target market, whatever it is, 80 million people on the, the island that is the UK, the fact that Brexit has happened, if you still want to get to those consumers, you're probably not going to put that capacity in France right. to serve you know, a consumer base in the UK, probably going to put it in the UK. So, yeah. And so I know this, is all, this all still has to be sorted out from regulations standpoint but um, even from that perspective if if 
if UK is going to have its own separate rules for how you handle customer data and where you store it, um, separate from EU rules. Well, it already just, does. It already, it already does, yeah. So, I mean, the way, the way that certainly from a data protection, data security perspective uh, works in Europe is, is essentially there is a, if you like, a minimum requirement set by European, at the European level. It says here's your minimum data center, uh, not data center, uh, data, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, data security. Data sovereignty. Data sovereignty. It's, it's all those things, right? Uh -huh. uh, governing your what you do with your data, where it goes, particularly personal data. And you know, GDPR is the perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. The implementation of those of that legislation, that European legislation, is in many cases, I think most, you know, I'm not a political expert, but um, is left down to the member states to implement. So the guidance for right, these are the this is what you need to do. Now you need to implement that in your legislation, in your law. And, and it's the minimum. If, if, if you want to do more, if you want to add to that, you, you're able to. And you know, Germany's always been a very good example as a, of a, um, an EU member state that has always gone above and beyond, particularly on, on personal data security. Yeah. So, and they require um, they require yeah local data to be stored absolutely. in Germany. Absolutely. If you can serve German citizens. Yeah. Okay. So Brexit or no Brexit, it's already that way. Everybody's yeah. doing have, has kind of their own. Mm -hmm. Even though they're working from the same framework, yeah, they all have their own uh, way of how they actually implementation and maybe augmentation of that uh, of that requirement. Okay, Zal, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Cheers. <laughs>